Hello and welcome to the Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO of Law in Sport. I hope you're doing well. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to know about the legal issues in sport, this is the podcast for you. We try to make it accessible uh, so you get to not only find out about the cutting edge issues and developments from the world of sport, but you also get to meet some of the personalities who work behind the scenes to, in this case, do detailed analysis and provide expert opinions, but also work tirelessly across the sector to educate and to help and move the sports sector forward. I'm delighted to welcome our special guest today, who is a Law and Sport Editorial Board member um, in some of his spare time. Uh, But the rest of the time, uh, he is an Associate Professor of Law and Ethics at Fordham University, Gabelli School of Business. His name is Professor Mark Comrade. Absolutely delighted to have you with us, Mark. Um, for those of you who don't know him, haven't come across him, he's a prolific um, uh, writer in the space and academic papers. He's written a book, The Business of Sports, Off the Field, In the Office, On the News, uh, which is a Routledge, uh, Routledge Taylor and Francis of uh, 2017, if you want to go and check that out. His current research focuses on the need to improve governance, transparency, and funding for the US Olympic bodies, particularly the UN, the US OPC, which is the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and the USA Track and USA Track and Field. He teaches, many of you have seen him either quoted in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Chicago Tribunal, he's appeared on CNN and Bloomberg. Um, and as I say, he's a law and sport editorial board member and he provides <laughs> lots of insights uh, and comments and analysis and is is really helpful as are all of the other editorial members of Law and Sport and it's something Mark that we really appreciate that you know often goes unrewarded it seems at times for being involved uh, but it's something that we'd like to thank you for. Um, Mark thanks so much for joining us today. Oh it's my pleasure thank you for inviting me. Now you've had a long-standing interest in um the commercialization of sport, we talked about funding, uh, athletes' rights, and you've got your own views on the the US model of student athletes and amateurism. And recently in June, we had the NCAA against Alston decision, the long-awaited decision that came out, particularly focusing on this issue of name, image, and likeness. I wondered if you could... First of all, for those people that aren't familiar with, you should go and read his article. Um, uh, and once you've done that, though, and if uh, could you just shed some light in terms of how significant this case was and is going forward? Sure. Uh, this case was a seven-year-old case. It actually was filed seven years ago as a challenge to the system of compensation or lack of compensation for uh, student-athletes in U.S. uh, colleges and universities under the system that has been um, promulgated by the NCAA. Uh, The NCAA is an organization of colleges and universities, and it is a private one. And its rules, however, bind uh, colleges and students 
and other stakeholders to certain um, requirements and for students, certain restrictions. The biggest restriction has been on their right to be compensated for their services uh, because the NCAA is probably the last area in the world that has defined amateurism in a very strict way. So in return for the, pro- the right to play and in some cases a scholarship, Students could not monetize their name, image, or likeness. Uh, They could not necessarily sign with an agent. They could not sign a professional contract. They could not be compensated for what they did. Uh, And in fact, they were severely limited in what they could get paid for, if you will, except for the scholarship. Uh, In terms of the scholarship, there also was a formula as to how you calculate the scholarship, and that was known as cost of attendance. So there were significant restrictions, and the issue here was that every student athlete in every NCAA school had to agree to that restriction. It was a nationwide policy. So it was not a situation that one school has the restriction and others don't, and you can choose. And when you have a situation like that, you basically have a competition law problem, or as in the United States, we call it an antitrust law problem. And indeed, the NCAA has been sued in the past on various antitrust grounds, not necessarily involving students, although in more recent years it certainly has, or the litigation has, because people are questioning that system from a legal point of view. The case went to a trial court, and the trial judge issued a ruling that was a partial victory for the NCAA. In so many words, it said that some of the restrictions were valid, but some were not. And the restrictions that were not valid had to do with the calculation of the scholarship, the educational benefits. The restrictions that were valid were the restrictions on outside compensation. So it wasn't a total loss, except the court did say that the NCAA was acting in some respects anti-competitively, which shouldn't be a complete shock. But both parties appealed it to an appeals court, and the appeals court basically ruled the same way. Then the NCAA appealed it to the Supreme Court. You know, the lawyers for the students didn't. The NCAA did, and my first reaction was, why? Because they won a considerable victory, they're taking a chance, and what would they get out of it? Um, so I thought it was risky for them to do so. And why did when, you think? Why, why do you think they did it then? Because I, I know in your article you put this as well, and I was curious as to, you know, what was the strategic I, I move? I have no idea. I really <laughs> don't know what was in their minds to do this, except what I think they wanted and they didn't get was in effect an immunity from antitrust lawsuits in the future, thinking the Supreme Court would buy their argument that they're so unique that they really are not subject to competition laws as other industries are. Uh, and they thought they could do it. Uh, I can't. I wasn't there. Uh, I have written uh, in the piece and commented that I thought this was highly risky, and it would be likely they would uh, lose the appeal uh, to the Supreme Court, which they did. It's not the fact that they lost. And basically, the Supreme Court upheld the lower court uh, rulings, but it's how they lost. And the fact that they lost in the nation's most important court, 9-0, uh, 
was basically a blowout. I honestly didn't think it would be 9-0. I thought it may be 7-2. But whatever it was, it was a big loss, and a particular big loss on the notion that they are so special and their uh, reasons uh, and being are so unique that they shouldn't be considered a monopolist or considered acting as a cartel for legal reasons. That is not what the court ruled. So uh, I wish I was a fly in the wall at the NCAA headquarters at the end of June when this court ruling was announced, because I'd be fascinated to know what the discussion was. And do you think there's, um, you know, from outside and yeah, from outside the US, we've been looking at the sort of the US college system, and, and undoubtedly there's some, you know, some great parts to it. Um, but the remuneration of athletes and the arguments around amateurism have always struck me as being slightly antiquated, <laughs> to say the least. Um, that didn't seem to was ring true in every scenario, as, it, as if it was how it is uh, least uh, stated. And listening to some of the the, the earlier courts, um, you know, they were, they were televised, weren't they? The um, the pleadings were both sides. The um, you know, uh, again, I, it felt like, you know, it was a very, um, they said, a relying on old, very, very old uh, and longstanding sort of assessments of what the sports landscape was and what the college experience is uh, and how much money it was making. And it, you you mentioned and, and drew out the uh, concurring opinion from Justice Kavanagh. Um, maybe you can talk about that. I'd be really interested if you could explore because I, I, you know, in your article you, you highlight this. And what does that mean when you've got a concurring opinion like this that basically calls out that assessment of, of amateurism as being uh, unpervasive? Uh, let me state two points before I talk about uh, Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence. The first point is a disclosure point. Uh, I was a signatory to what's called an amicus brief which is what's called a friend of the court brief for one of the sides in this case, and that was the student-athlete side. So I do have mm. to disclose that point yeah. <laughs> uh, in terms of objectivity that indeed I staked a position on this case. Now, having said that, I think your basic question about the antiquated nature of this, I mean, I think it's fairly ludicrous. Uh, I'd go further than that to simply say that to simply um, – categorize the NCAA as having some special mission to preserve amateurism to um, override competition laws, you know, is a very questionable, questionable assumption, and the court found it a questionable assumption. So leading on to the one opinion that I think is probably quite important, and that was Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence. It's one judge one opinion, which normally is not going to be a huge deal. But in this case, it was because the court, in its majority, its, its unanimous opinion, stuck with the facts. They only had to deal with what the lower court ruled, which was an injunction against, um, or upholding, I should say, some of the restrictions on the educational benefits. It didn't address general compensation because the lower appeal didn't address that. So the court said, simply put, the NCAA couldn't justify um, you know, uh, overturning this injunction. Uh, it, the um, uh, points by the uh, student-athletes were reasonable, and uh, the NCAA was acting in violation of antitrust law. 
but it didn't look at the whole picture, just as Kavanaugh did, and said, I agree with the opinion of my colleagues, and I signed it, but if I had my way, I would end the whole system. I would say that, and he said, this, if this was a regular business, it would be flagrantly illegal in the United States. And he took aim at other rules, like the rules on direct compensation. And he did it in a very, very direct way and said that this whole system is, is of questionable legality. Now, why is that important? Because if I am a lawyer seeking to sue the NCAA for other anti-competitive actions, particularly on the compensation issue, or really litigating that, or on that name, image, and likeness, I'm getting a yellow light at least, and maybe a green light from one justice on the Supreme Court and said, ooh, if this case would ever go back to the Supreme Court on another challenge, this kind of challenge, wow, we have a justice that's big, basically saying, you know, the NCAA is acting like an illegal cartel, and that carries some psychological weight. And the NCAA realized that because the day after the ruling, they basically put their hands up in the air and said, we're not going to deal with restrictions on name, image, and likeness. And just to repeat, that was not part of this case. That was part of other cases, but not this case. And they realized that they were going to be sued big time if they did not do that. And that's why we now have basically a free-for-all in the United States of student-athletes signing deals with all sorts of companies. It's only a few weeks after July 1st, but... Uh, for some students, you know, the monetization is already happening, even though the NIL issue did not was not something the Supreme Court dealt with in its decision. But Kavanaugh's uh, concurring opinion opened the door to say, wow, uh, lots of other things the NCAA could be doing regarding student athletes could be in legal jeopardy. Brilliant. Thank you for that analysis. And it's so interesting because – you know, even with the name, image, and likeness situation where athletes are able to enter these endorsement deals, essentially. You know, one argument's been put, put through from some of our colleagues in the sector is that, well, great, but there's only a few athletes that are really going to see any significant financial return on that because there's not that many that have got high profile <laughs> enough to actually have something to exploit in the first place. It'd be really interesting to see what the numbers come out like. And then observe... Yeah, and that's that yeah. is true. That is true, but but the kinds of student athletes that can make those deals will not only be the star quarterbacks of the team that you expect, but what you're also seeing is that athletes in other sports that are not the so-called big money sports in the United States—it could be volleyball, it could be rowing, it could be um, uh, sports along those lines. Sometimes students are social media influencers, and they can make deals like that. Uh, and the whole social media influencer issue is, of course, is generational, and it's you know way uh, newer than you know my years. But having said that, that is an interesting source. So the kind of students that may make these deals could be different than what you normally would think 
uh, in the past, too. I don't think there'll be a lot of them, as you said, but I do think that uh, they will exist. There's another point to be made, and this is part of the quirky aspect of laws in the United States, that many laws are state laws, not central government or federal laws, but state laws. And about now 20 states have passed laws dealing with NIL. That's why it was separate and distinct from the Austin case, because already states were saying, we want to let students monetize their name, image, and likeness. The problem is that now you have about eight or nine states that have laws in effect, and they differ. So the law, say, in Georgia could differ from uh, California, which could differ somewhat from Florida. And that's going to be very, very tricky because schools will have to deal with different kinds of laws. Now, 85 to 90% of the laws would be similar, but there'll still be that 10% that will be different and may have some restrictions. And a law by, of course, you know, a code-based law is going to supersede the rules of a private organization. And so the NCAA really um, kicked up its arms uh, for the states that don't have these laws. But the states that do... Uh, the schools and the student-athletes have to abide by them. And there's talk about a national law in Congress, but that has not been uh, formally acted on at this point. So it is kind of a really strange environment that we're seeing, but it's an environment where you're seeing now student-athletes having a lot more rights than they did a month ago. Alston, I just think, will accelerate that and probably weaken the effect of the NCAA in future years. And so then would you think, so two things I'm thinking about there is that one about sort of the effect on the overall market. So, for, you know, you've obviously got your, uh, you know, the, the different, obviously you say the big sports have got their, their, their conferences that they're in and that influences, you know, how much money they're getting and, you know, who they can attract, et cetera, in terms of the, the talent coming through. But just thinking about this now, that the actually being a, a competitive advantage could be if you've got favorable uh, name, image, and likeness state laws. Uh, uh, yeah, that could become a quite from a recruitment perspective, could become quite an advantage to certain schools. And where do you see this? Yeah, you know, as it all pans out. So obviously, this is like the first or one of a series of chips away at the NCAA current model. One would think that the NCAA are going to have to react and have to, um, you know, move more swiftly to try to embrace the future. Because even just looking at this, you're just saying, right, if you're not really embracing, you know, which they've, <laughs> they're coming late to the party now that with the name of his likeness, there's still issues around reputation that come into play. Uh, reputational harm being associated to the wrong type of brands or companies that have got questionable ethics or, you know, conduct, right? They're, they're, at some point, if we, if we were to take it away and say, using the Kavanaugh situate Justice Kavanaugh's uh, sort of analysis to say, look, if this was any other business an operation, there will come a point in time where you think, well, actually, we probably need to enter into to some form of negotiations or at least conversations with the athlete group uh, to make sure that we're not leaving ourselves vulnerable. Mm -hmm. uh, great points. And let me backtrack a bit, even though I think everybody knows my position on the case. There is one concern that I think is fair to say if you're an athletic director at a college or university, and that's the concern about alumni 
of the school or so-called boosters. That's the nickname that they're given in the United States. And these are alumni that take college sports super seriously and can give lots of money. And let's say we have an alum that has an auto dealership. And the alum can say to the student, you know what, come to this school, I'll make you a spokesperson for so-and-so car dealership for you know $25,000 or $30,000 a year. And that could be a concern. Some of the state laws do address what's called a fair market value for the student services, but it's really hard to figure that out. And it's very possible to get a really, really uh, athlete on demand to pick between four or five schools to say, hey, look, you know, we have the biggest auto dealership in the state. You know, our alumni, uh, alumnus is going to meet with you, et cetera, and can make a deal. So in a sense that that could happen and it could skew the choices that a prospective student athlete could make. I think we have to see how this plays out. But that's one aspect. The second aspect is that you pointed out there are athletic conferences. The NCAA is not the only player. And schools generally belong to regional conferences, some of which are more powerful than others. And the major ones, called the Big Five, um, often have their own rules. And they could have their own rules. It may be or may not be illegal to do that because they're not going to dominate the market nationwide. So the Southeast Conference of schools in that part of the country have certain restrictions on alumni uh, deals with students, but the Pacific, you know, the PAC-12 doesn't, another conference, then there's not an antitrust problem with that. The student can make the choice. But the problem is if all the conferences adopt the same rules, we may see a redux of this issue. But it's really kind of up in the air, but I do have concerns about the role of alums, and I think that that is a very fair point to make uh, regarding what could happen, what could go right, maybe what may not go so right. The next, yeah, good. So I was going to say because on this point, it sounds very similar to you know as we as you know within Europe and within football, we've got these sort of financial fair plays or, or um, um, sustainability rules um in place in terms of like attracting you know making sure that you've got um competitive well they would say competitive balance some of the arguments that you're some of the points you've raised around the boosters starts to get into that realm where um you know you just entrench certain schools uh to be much more successful not because you know they're 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 offering as such just because they've got these very uh, wealthy boosters, but it seems you know fraught with complexities. But at the same and at the same time, it still brings into the question the amateurism argument. Right? When you look at it from the lens of amateurism, that it seems almost impossible to reconcile when you've got the conferences, all the complications with boosters, etc. Um, to recognise it as anything uh, that really equates to amateurism in the in, in its truest sense. And that's true. And here's where things could lead. Uh, the idea of treating student-athletes like employees. This is something that was considered, you know, basically sacrilegious. But if you do that in some cases, uh, I don't think in every case, but in some cases, in some schools, and some teams, and have them sign a labor agreement, 
you don't have an antitrust problem because labor agreements are exempted from antitrust. They, the students athletes could unionize, and it will say not so much for money, but it'll give us five years of medical insurance once we graduate. Now there's actually two uh, years by many schools, but you know the issue of medical insurance is big in the United States because unlike in most of Europe, we don't have the powerful state-structured system that everybody arguably is cradled to the grave. Uh, it's not a subject I want to get into and have expertise in, <laughs> but nevertheless, we don't have that in that way in the United States. And so it's a more crazy quilt uh, situation. So that would be something that student-athletes may be more concerned about, or at least having some kind of insurance policy. If they're injured and don't make it to the pros, they'll get some money if, and if indeed they're elite athletes. And that's something that could be negotiated. And, and do you think? Yeah. And do you think? Sorry, that the the you know we saw the northwestern was it northwestern who yes, tried to unionize yeah many years ago now um oh it was seven years ago six years ago about I that remember. yeah about that um if that if that was if that same case was to arise now do you think in light of the Alston decision it may it may the outcome may be different because I believe it was athletes at Northwestern University wanted to unionize and they didn't have uh, you are, I, I'm, I'm gonna part hand over to you for the correct terminology okay <laughs> um but but I think it was they they, they tried to unionize and they didn't ha they weren't able to were they they were refused permission if that's, if that's right correct. right the football players did and so you're yeah. generally correct and they did for right. the reason of medical insurance, you know, and the, and it was really not well reported. It's not that they said, "Well, get us, give us a hundred thousand dollars a year." No, of course not, because the the market wouldn't bear that. But they wanted more protection, and they were backed by an organization that uh, and advocates for their side. When they brought it to the a hearing officer in the labor board, the hearing officer agreed with them and said, "Look, I think your employees." Because you work, you have so many hours you have to practice. It's at a set time every day, and the hours are really could be a lot. Uh, if you, there are rules regarding maximum hours, but the hours are a lot. And I've had enough students, you know, who've been student athletes that it's a big commitment. So this uh, hearing officer sided with the proposed union. Now, of course, the university appealed it as fast as you could say your name, and the full National Labor Relations Board. Uh, dismissed it, but not on the merits, on jurisdictional grounds. So they actually did not quite get to the point. The basic issue here is going to be, are they going to be employees under the labor law, which defines what an employee is? And while I'm not sure at this time, but it's quite possible a future labor board can make that determination. And it's also possible that schools may want that, because if they negotiate in that way for at least some elite sports in major school programs, they won't have antitrust lawsuits to worry about. Because as I said, labor agreements trump antitrust lawsuits by law. Uh, no doubt as well, as we've seen in professional sports anyway, the alignment between the labor and the owners, leagues, organizers, right? Once you get that, the, the alignment between the two is a more successful financial model for both parties. Because what you wouldn't want, I would imagine if you're, a, say, an American football team at an American university, top tier university in a big conference, is your athletes having sponsorship, essentially agreements with people who are conflicting with your, <laughs> with your team sponsors, 
Well, that's that's right, but you can negotiate mm-hmm. that in a labor exactly. Exactly. situation. So, they wouldn't want that. Some states have restrictions on that in their right. laws too. They said that, in other words, if I'm a Nike athlete and the school is an Adidas school, you can't right. have that. That's actually the law in California. But other states may not have that, and that can create some tricky situations. And of course. You know, what nature of what kind of products are being endorsed and, you know, you have the issues that you would often have in a more confusing free market, you know, in an unregulated market, shall we say. And that certainly would be applicable. But the future will be very different. And I suspect in five years, you're going to see a very different system, whereas um, if you want me to predict, and I'd be happy to predict – Basically, that you may see some union-type organizations. You may also see the rise of what are called minor leagues, where students will say, look, we want to play for a minor league that could lead to the NBA, and we still could be students. You know, this kind of uh, you know, myth is that if you're not a student-athlete, you can't be a student. You can be a student. I've had students that were professional athletes. They just didn't play on the college teams. But they certainly were students. They took classes. I graded them. Hopefully, they learned something in my classes. And and that's perfectly fine. You can certainly do that. So they can still be in school, but they can get paid from these private um, – these leagues, these minor leagues that we call them. There's one in now in the NBA. Uh, there's an NFL uh, idea, a couple ideas coming about as well. And in uh, ice hockey, there are minor leagues, and so there are in American baseball. And and, and also, there's uh, uh, what Ricky Valente and like David West are doing with the uh, professional collegiate league as well, which is a slightly different, you know, like summer leagues essentially, where, where athletes would get paid in, during the summer for short competitions essentially that would make them enough money and pay for their education that they wouldn't need to uh, play for the, the the college team as such. Yeah, great idea. And so I think we'd see that. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, you know we'll see a lot more, a lot of weakening on the NCAA's part, and more power in the conferences, especially certain conferences. Um, I do think that recruitment could be more difficult for many schools if their goal is to recruit really good student athletes and may not have the connections or the name recognition. Uh, that's a possibility. Uh, as well. And the other possibility is going to be what's going to be the future of broadcast rights, uh, which are still going up on the college level uh, for football, for American football, and of course for basketball, uh, which basketball is more uh, both conference and NCAA. Football is just the conferences. The NCAA is not involved in football. Uh, partially because of an old Supreme Court case, which uh, they lost at antitrust grounds too, but that's for another day. And that's so interesting. And I think, you know, for those those of you that are listening who are not familiar with the American model models, I should say, of sport, that the um yeah, the college pro well, that's how I was gonna fall into trap then. The college teams that are very similar to professional teams, um uh at the big conferences, the kind of the following and the loyalty with the alumni is so strong. I'd say it's the closest really to the equivalent of sort of European football in American sports in terms of the loyalty and you know the locality issues, you know, in terms of the fan base, etc. Um that's my opinion. I'm not sure if it's, if other people will agree. But um Mark, so in terms of one, thank you for coming on to do this. So interesting. Um, you know, your perspective in terms of where the, if we call it a market, may develop 
um, you know, all the different models and different applications. And it's always one of the, the well, I would say was one of the problems when we're doing analysis of, you know, the American sports law landscape is the, the state laws that always make everything 10 times more complicated because you think you understand an issue and then you find there's a rogue state here there or everywhere or you know, everyone's taking divergent opinions uh, or di- di- divergent uh, perspectives makes it um, uh, challenging but very interesting so thank you for shedding light on that is there any uh, sort of final comments or thoughts or yeah, if anyone's interested in this, is there anything that you know they should keep an eye on that's going to happen over the next sort of six to twelve months? Well, I think uh, you know certainly I'm sure there will be other articles in Law and Sport and other journals as well. Uh, you know, I'd look on some of the online uh, journals too, uh, the Athletic, Yahoo Sports, at least here and there. I think they're available um, all over and. Certainly covering the issue, and I think, uh, you know, once, you know, the Olympics uh, sort of, you know, end uh, the issues there, I think there's going to be more examination of what exactly will be going on uh, in regard to the new landscape uh, in the United States with college sports. So I think, you know, we all will be looking at it, looking at uh, the new state laws coming to effect, uh, maybe um, any other litigation that's going to be filed if there is, and what's the future role of the NCAA? You know, is it going to be an anachronism? Is it going to fade away? It'll, will it still have some role? Uh, and, you know, stay tuned. That's really what I would say. Joe, that's brilliant. And you just made me think with the Simone Biles um, uh, announcement was yesterday or day before about her her mental health and you know stepping down and the you know all those type of issues in in uh, particularly here in in Britain but you know across the world at the moment this uh, as it has been in the US particularly around gymnastics about the welfare of athletes when you put the two things combined in terms of the you know where it's going to develop and then you know the welfare of athletes becoming more and more important it's going to be like adds another level of um i think interests uh that may and also influences where where the market may go and also with um someone like Simone Biles in one interesting case because let's give the NCAA credit for one thing they were the general funnel for athletes to get to the olympics precisely because olympic sports don't pay so in track and field, you will hear in the broadcast, for example, somebody running when they introduce runners, this person went to Stanford, this person went to Texas. You know, they have a lot of those programs. The problem with gymnastics in the United States was they were first very young for, for women, as we know, under college age, and there really was not that kind of system. So you were relying on a system that had very few checks Bounces and was bound for abuse. Agreed. Not that it wouldn't happen in colleges. Larry Nasser worked for a college as well. It certainly could happen there and has happened there. But I think when there is at least a organization that's going to pay more attention than an Olympic governing body that clearly was uh, had boards with friends of friends on them uh, and don't have the money for lawsuits, whereas colleges and universities do. You know, it may be a better way to go for lots of athletes to train for the Olympics. And the NCAA system, in many respects, has worked quite well for those sports. So I think it's worth pointing that out. No, I think it's a great point to end on. You know, these things are, you have to put it in, you know, it is complex and there's many uh, factors to take in consideration. I think 
you know, the point you're raising is that if there is true amateurism, as in the, if there's not a paid professional route for you, um, then the collegiate system with scholarships and, you know, with the funding that it brings in and distributes to other sports, you know, ov- obviously has some benefit. You know, here we have, you know, lottery funding essentially, which is, you know, redistributed, um, you know, to, 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 to our, our Olympic athletes, uh, that helps on their ways. And so looking at that, yeah, it, may, it makes for a fascinating analysis. And maybe we should do something a bit more on that going forward. Looking at, we have looked at it before in the past. Maybe it's something we will we'll, we'll revisit again. Mark, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule. I really appreciate it. I could, as you, I could talk for Great Britain, as most people know, but I could carry on talking to you for another hour about these issues. It's so fascinating. Um, and, and, you know, the, the American sport is so rich in terms of um, both from a legal perspective, but also from the commercial and the, the governance and structural perspective. That it's, it's just fascinating to, to have this discussion with you. So thank you for taking the time out. And for everyone else, um, of course, if you like the podcast, please do tell people about it. If you want to connect with Mark, you know, please do drop him an email if you liked what he said. If you enjoyed the conversation, please do tell people about it. And remember, for the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport, go to lawinsport.com. Follow us on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, Facebook, uh, on all those channels, obviously. And then you can obviously subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, uh, Spotify, iTunes, etc. And wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, I hope you have a wonderful day. And thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>